Lisa Vine, welcome to the conversation series. Thank you so much for being here and for sharing your story with how you've got um, involved with the LGBT plus um, community and the work that you're doing now with colleges and the youth. Um, so how did this all start for you? Um, well, before I get started, I just wanted to say thank you for having me out. It's really nice to be here. Um, I mean, how long have you got and how far back should we go? I mean, I don't, I don't want to bore. It's poignant for you. Where, <laughs> where's your journey start? I don't, I don't want to bore the listeners too early on. No. But, um, <laughs> I suppose for me, uh, difficult to know really. I think when I was at university, well, actually I'll go back a little bit. When I was doing my A-levels, I worked at, um, well, I worked in Vista Village, like an outlet centre place yeah. near my house. Yeah. And this, there was a gay guy there who was the women's floor manager. And being um, a lesbian woman, I I didn't really like know any other LGBT plus people. And I remember his name was Ko. And I remember he said to me, he was like, Lisa, when you go to university, you have to join the gay club. And I was like, <laughs> what's the gay, like, what's the gay club? Like I came from rural Buckinghamshire. Like I didn't. You know, there weren't really no groups. There weren't really kind of LGBT plus centre, you know, nothing really. So I didn't really know what he was talking about. So when I went to Loughborough University in 2006, um, the first thing I did at Freshers' Fair was head straight to <laughs> Gay Club, <laughs> which was actually the LGBT association at the time. Um, and now at Loughborough University, it's the LGBT plus association. Um, but yeah, and I guess that's where my sort of uh, passion and enthusiasm for working with the LGBT plus community or for the LGBT plus community came from. Um, being involved in the association, um, Ben um, Babs, um, Babakafani, he works, um, he's quite high up in um, Network Rail now and does a lot for the LGBT um, plus community across Network Rail as an organisation. But he said to me at the time, he was the chair and he said, you should be chair next. And I was like a fresher, like I didn't, you know, I didn't, I was like, what, what do you mean Babs? And he was like, I think you'd be great. So yeah, I got quite involved and, and like went to conferences like NUS National Union of Student Conferences about all the LGBT plus representatives from all the NUS unis coming wow. together, you know, in like Birmingham and, and London. And I mean, it was amazing. So then. Uh, do you feel that was, do you feel that was your first time you felt you could unleash all your energy and commitment to you know who you are oh yes absolutely yes um definitely and I think you know um I, I was gonna say we've all seen Little Britain but I maybe <laughs> people haven't now but you know there was um you know the character that was you know I'm the only gay in the village yeah and I think I you know I, I come from a little village called Marsh Gibbon in Buckinghamshire and I literally felt like the only gay in the village at a time when you know section 28 from the local government act was in place i didn't even know what section 28 was until much later so what like, is what is section 28 i don't know so it was it's no longer it was repealed in i have to get my facts right here <laughs> i think 2005 or 2006 it was repealed um but it basically or was it later than that mm, i have to look it up sorry it's i should check. know that by now but i think it was 2005 2006 it was repealed but it basically um made promotion of homosexuality um, against the law in publicly funded organisations. So whether that was local councils, by default schools. 
So mm. I always wanted to talk to people, like to teachers about being gay at school and feeling quite alone and a bit yeah. like I, you know, didn't belong, but I didn't feel like I could. And perhaps that's because section 28 worked really well. Mm. Not that I'm approving it. Um, uh, so yeah, and when I went to uni, you know, I found my, tri you know, I found my tribe. Everyone always talks mm. about how as humans we're tribal, um, yeah. but I, you know, and I, I, and you could see, you know, I remember going to the stool, like I remember it like a, like a video in my brain, you know, like a picture memory, a film memory, like a living memory, um, like it was yesterday and, and seeing people and, and going along to meetings and thinking like, these are other people like me, like this is amazing. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it was good. But then it wasn't until much later that sort of heading out into the world of kind of politics, because um, I did a politics master at, masters at Leeds mm -hmm. and I worked in parliament for a little bit and I worked in policy and public affairs teams for some charities in Leicester and oh, wow. rugby, um, that I then saw the job at the LGBT, Leicester LGBT Centre that was a BBC Children in Need project and supporting trans and non-binary youth wow. and I just thought that's the job for me because I'd I loved working for charities some more than others mm. um we'll leave it there um but actually I wanted that feel good factor I wanted to actually make a difference to people in the kind of short or not short term but like immediate term yes. like you know when you meet somebody like I met a family and a young person at the LGBT centre in Leicester and mm. I could advocate for them and I could listen to them and I could um, hopefully, you know, by being supportive and validating them and their identity, make them feel better, you know, even if it was temporary. Mm. And actually, when I worked in policy and public affairs teams, you'd be lobbying for something and it would take a long time to get to where you, well, maybe even a compromise of where you wanted to get. Yes. Um, whereas at the LGBT centre, I got to work on the front line, sort of directly. Yeah. yeah, that's amazing. And are you still there working with the LGBT Leicester? Um, so I um, currently run my own business, um, but I know that they are they do quite a lot of work and I support them in with that on a part time contract. Now I left for left at the end of the BBC Children in Need project funding. because So let's talk about the BBC Children in yeah. Need funding then. So, uh, so what was that and what did the money fund? So it was the first BBC Children in Need project of its time and it wow. wasn't, it wasn't my, well it, it became my baby but it wasn't, I, it wasn't down to me. Um, it was down to the managers at the time of the LGBT centre who put who, all the work into the bid writing and mm. evidencing the need and going through all the kind of, you know, the legitimate hoops that you need to get through to get BBC Children in Need funding. It's not easy. Um, and it basically mm. was set up to um, support trans and non-binary young people. So anybody who was questioning their gender identity um, knew that they aren't or that they weren't and probably still aren't the gender identity they were assigned when they were born mm. um, and also you know well that's the same as non-binary people know that they aren't the gender that they were assigned at, at birth but actually um, they might identify outside of the binary genders of male and female um, 
in some way. And, and basically it was set up not just to support young people, but to support their families um, and also to support professionals. And actually I, I kind of had to go on a BBC Children in Need Outcomes Day. I remember really early on, me and my manager went, there were loads of other projects there. And we had to talk to us about impact and outcomes and evidencing and, and yeah. all of that. Brilliant. But I remember them saying, you know, like increasing confidence is a really easy one. And I thought, not for this project and actually that came to fruition a lot so you know young people would say I feel much more confident when I'm at the centre but when I step outside those doors that disappears yeah. and actually BBC Children Need said to me quite a lot early on and then they learned I think bless them that actually me working with professionals to help them to support the young person although I wasn't necessarily working directly with that young person because they were like you need to be working with the young people but I was like working with the professionals who are also supporting that young person mm. help them to be inclusive of trans and non-binary young people to help them challenge prejudice in schools and youth groups and in the foster care system and all of that actually will benefit not only the young person I'm working with and they're supporting now but future young people who aren't cisgender so um for people who don't know cisgender people are about 99% of the population um, and it's people who feel that they are the gender identity they were assigned when they were born um, so I'm a cis woman um, so basically anybody you know supporting professionals to support young people who aren't cisgender whatever that looks like whether they're transgender non-binary um, or identify themselves completely differently um, yeah actually supporting professionals was really important because I wanted to make sure that the other people in that young person's life felt confident to support them in the right way yes um, I feel like I've digressed Elle sorry no not at all because oh, I think perfect. actually it's really led on to the fact that um you're looking at an, an holistic approach and it's one that like you say when you're in a community that you feel supported in and free that's brilliant and you're thriving yet when you're taken out of that into a community where there is no support there is no one understanding how you're feeling or able to guide you in a, um, a, a, a the right direction or to any sort of support um it's hard and I think also as you said with the professionals I think um there's been so much change in terminology and phrasing and You've just said there a, um, a gender phrase I've not even heard of. So, uh, you know, I've gone. Uh, which one? Non, was it non-binary? No, not the non-binary. The um, cisgender. Yes. Yeah. So which, I have no idea. Yeah, which would, is what that would completely be. <laughs> well, but uh, it's very common. Um, I, I was going to say normal. Then I hate the word normal. I was going to say that's really normal. So um, heterosexual. Pardon? Heterosexual. Is it similar to heterosexual? You yeah. Say? So, yes. so yeah, if you think about, although obviously gender and sexuality are different, if yes. you think about heterosexual straight people being what we know at the minute from the from the kind of data that, that we've got, and hopefully we'll know more when the census, inf the recent census information is published. Yeah. Heterosexual straight people are the majority. Mm. Um, and in the same way that in terms of gender, cisgender people are, are the majority um like I said about about 99% of the population of cisgender but we okay, don't so when know... you're saying this gender it's I am the gender I was born as 
or assigned at birth. At yeah. sign, signed so, at birth. Yeah, so if you, because this is controversial for some, uh, I know that people may be listening, but also people who aren't listening um, to this, who I know from Twitter and other platforms might yeah. not agree with me. Um, but we just, we know that sex and gender identity are two different things. Absolutely. Um, sex and often when I do workshops with young people they look at me horrified like I'm about to talk about sexual relations with them and I'm like no 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 it's fine <laughs> like you look at me like this external person's coming and she wants to talk to us about sex no that's not what I'm doing um when your your sex is essentially uh your biological or physical makeup and I am not a scientist I'm a social scientist by by trade so I don't know loads about it but it's it's predominantly based on your genitalia um, and also the hormones that you have in your body. Um, and so, but you are given a gender when you're born based yeah. on the sex that you are. Um, but actually, we, if you look at different cultures across, even like within, I was gonna say across the globe, but even within certain, uh, I was gonna say counties, that's not necessarily right, countries. Within certain countries, they'll have different communities and different cultures who, who consider gender completely differently to a different country or a different culture and they'll express gender differently um and so for me i know that that gender and, and sex are different so you know sometimes people say well you can't you can't change your gender you're just male or female but i think there's more to it than that um, yes so yeah yeah so then going from that though having assigning your gender um then saying that your sexuality because I think this is where a lot of people can get confused or struggle to understand is that you can be born uh, female or be assigned female and then some people have felt they're gay or a lesbian and then they've sorry or they're a boy then they've had um, gender uh, transition so to become a female, yet then they sort of fancy men, if you know, if you know what I mean. So then you feel that actually it's gone a bit of a circle. So have they then gone from being, um, are they a gay man? And then they've become a female, but now, now they are a female and now actually they're straight. Does yeah. that, do you get what I mean? Yeah. That I think that's where a lot of the... Um, for me, you get your head around it, but actually then when you work it out and you separate that gender from that sexuality, you can then make sense of actually how that process for that person must be. Um, although it is, they don't think, you know, that's not their thought as they're going through it. Oh, I am a gay man, now I'm a trans. They're not thinking that. They're thinking I need to just feel myself and be myself. Um, but it I is think a lot really to take isn't it? It's really important to highlight the difference between, like you did, like between sexuality and gender identity. I mean, it's very, very complex and there will be people out there who can offer something in a much more articulate fashion than yeah. I can. <laughs> um, you know, you see people at conferences or even on Twitter with limited characters and you think, yes, like that's brilliant. Um, but I think we, we think about, it's funny, somebody once said to me, a trans person actually once said to me, and it's not this simple. I'll say it now, it's not this simple, I know. But they used to say, um, your gender identity is who you go to bed, 
who, who you go to bed as and your sexuality is who you go to bed with. Um, and I don't, I don't know if it's always that simple, but it, it kind of, they laughed about it and, and I laughed about it and, and they were like, it makes kind of sense though. Um, but I think, yeah, your, your sexuality is, is like who you're attracted to. And I don't think that your gender identity determines that. No. Um, if I, for, well, for anybody, I don't, you know, and I think a lot, a lot of the trans and non-binary youth that I've worked with. So to date, I've probably worked with, about, I think the last time I actually added it up and kind of looked at my records and stuff, probably about 120, 130 trans and non-binary children all the way through to, to sort of people in their early 20s. Right. You know, when I'm working with sort of 14, 15, 16 and over who have started to think about their sexual identity, their experience of, of their sexuality is, is entirely different to their gender identity. And for the young people I worked with, they just, you know, they'll say, I just want to go into a shop and buy a drink and somebody say, and like gender me correctly. And not even if we think about pronouns. So she, her, or he, him, or for non-binary people, they, them, because it's a gender neutral pronoun, but even how we use gendered language. So like, if I went into a shop, most people, I mean, I haven't for a long time because of COVID, um, but um, actually, you know, if you go into a shop to buy something, most people will perceive me to be, my gender identity to be female or that I am a woman. And, and they would be right based on looking at me, I suppose. Mm. Um, but actually, how do we know someone's gender identity until they tell us? But I'm in the shop and I'm buying a water bottle and somebody says, all right, love like to call me forward because I'm in the queue. If they perceive me to be male, it's very unlikely that they would use that language. They might say, all right, mate, instead. And actually for the trans and non-binary young people that I've worked with, being gendered correctly, being read mm. correctly by people is really important. And I think it's, it's that, that, that is about, that's about gender identity and how people refer to you and how people talk to you. And, and the fact that that has to sit right with you mm. to be, a, you know, to be, to validate who you are and to be acknowledged yeah. for who you are. And that is very different to, um, yeah, who, who you may or may not want to have a sexual relationship mm. with. So, I mean, it's very complicated um, that, you know, there's loads of- It is, but then it's simple as you, I think that's the simple key thing is that actually, every human life is as valuable as the next. So just accept that person for the beauty that they are. And yeah, and just say, validate them, you know, for life. I think that's so key. And then with sort of professionals, you were talking about speaking to sort of the college professors and teachers now. So where you said at the beginning, when you were younger, you didn't have that discourse. Now, what are you seeing with sort of schools and colleges? How are they supporting the LGBT uh, plus community? Yeah, so this is my business. And I realised that I started off on my sort of beginning of my journey working with LGBT plus people and didn't actually clarify where I'm at now and who I actually <laughs> am, uh, which is probably important. So I, I run my own LGBT plus um, advocacy consultancy and training um, organisation or business um, and have done for the last. Mm, two and a half no where are we 2021 two and a half years yeah two and a half years I'll say um and so part of that 
is um, going, yeah, going into schools and colleges. And, um, and my sort of tagline, is that the right word? I need to get a bit more business savvy, Al, I'm not gonna lie. Um, but is um, supporting those striving for LGBT plus inclusion. And I think that's the really important bit. People are so worried, like especially school teachers and college staff and, and even school staff, maybe they're not teachers, maybe they're a teaching assistant or the person that works in the canteen and the person who's on playground duty. As I think as long as you have that intention to want to do the right thing, mm. that's a brilliant starting point. And that's why I'm like supporting those like who are striving for LGBT plus inclusion, because it's OK to not get it right straight away. It's OK to not necessarily know what to do. But I think mm. the beautiful thing about schools and colleges now, for the most part, I have been I have had some negative experiences um, as an adult, but for the most part, you know, I have to, I, go, I deliver training or I do some consultancy or I do a, some work, a workshop with maybe the, um, uh, what are they called? The, well, the well-being team who need a bit more kind of targeted scenario based work. Yeah. And they'll say to me, you know, I had a young person come to me and they just, they said that they were transgender and, and that's great, but I didn't know what to say. And I think in my, my initial head, like 18 year old me, even though I know that sexuality and gender aren't the same, but as a as a, a lesbian woman who's part of the LGBT plus community, I think, blimey, the fact that a student is openly telling mm. you that is, is, is great. I mean, that doesn't make mm. everything okay, but it's a great, you know, there are so many more young people that are saying, actually, this is who I am. And I'd like, to, either I'd like some support, or I'd like to be, to be known. And I want you to know about my identity because it's, it's not all of me, but it's an important yeah. part of me. And that's really, you know, 15, 16, 17, 18 year old Lisa is just like, yes, you know, like, yeah. yes. But actually what school staff and college staff are saying is, we don't know what to do. And I think what's lovely um, is that most of the time people have a good idea of what they think they should do, but they still look at me like a rabbit in headlights and go, well, I kind of said this and I, I kind of said this and then I said this and, and I've suggested to whoever's head of year that we should do this, but is that the right thing? Uh, and it's like people don't feel not everybody but people don't feel confident uh, in supporting lgbt plus young people i think um and do you think so, it's confidence because they're frightened they're going to upset someone or say something wrong and be sort of reprimanded for it or yes, where do you think do. it comes from i think not even if it, not necessarily reprimanded for it although maybe uh, i think that um a lot of times people are really worried about saying the wrong thing mm. and and you know like I've worked a lot you know part of the BBC Children E project was running the tea party which was a youth group on a Monday evening for trans and non-binary young people you know I've worked a lot with teenagers whether it's delivering workshops or assemblies even though they're not that interactive sometimes um you know but a lot of the teenagers I've worked with have kind of said oh you know I, I came out to my favorite teacher at school but then and she was really lovely at the time, but it's been a week and I've, she's not really said anything to me about what I said since. And I've kind of explored that with them and, and I've heard it many times and they sort of say, oh no, I don't think she's transphobic at all. I think that she just doesn't know what to say. And I think lots of professionals that I've worked with have said, oh, well, you know, working with teenagers can be really challenging and, you know, building that rapport is really important. And if you say the wrong thing, it can really damage a relationship. So I think, there is positive intention a lot of the time in not saying anything in case you get it wrong and upset the young person that you're working with. But actually that can lead to uncertainty from the young person, feeling isolated, 
and all of those kind of things. So a lot of what I do in terms of training is and, and is doing some work around inclusive language use and some scenarios around um, what to do when someone discloses to you and like the kind of the body language you should kind of um, display and the kind of questions that you can ask in the right moment. So can um, I ask what those questions are? So what, what would they be? And I think this is for sort of A, for a community of teachers or professionals, but also as parents. Sometimes this could be our, our son or daughter coming to tell us something and it's good to have that knowledge, isn't it? And it's hard, it's difficult because it's never a one size fits all approach, which no. makes my job even harder, I think, because I want to be able to say to everybody, right, do this, do this, do this, do this, and, and you'll be golden. That's not always the case, mm. which makes it difficult. But I think actually somebody has disclosed that they're questioning their gender identity or or even I think as well like questioning sexuality I think sometimes a lot of parents and carers will say do you know what they'll say to me oh I, I kind of saw it coming because I, I used to run a monthly parents and carers group as well so I where parents and carers could share mm. so some people would be like do you know what? I think on some level I always knew whereas other parents and carers would say I had no idea like it 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 hit me like a bus. I didn't, I had no idea what to say. And I think sometimes, and it would depend on the young person, <laughs> I think mm. a little bit of silence is okay. When someone discloses that to you, I think it's okay to give them a bit of breathing space, still sit with positive body and open body language, mm -hmm. give them that eye contact, give them a kind of reassuring like head tilt as if you're, you know, you list, show them you're still listening, but give them that space. If they don't say anything, then it's time to step up and say something next because they might be panicking. Oh my goodness, mm. my parent, my carers, not my mum, my dad, whoever it is, they're not saying anything. Do they hate me now? Are they going to reject me? What's going to happen? Oh. Because the chances are a young person is going to have thought about this, especially mm. I think gender identity for a really long time before they disclose it to somebody. That was my experience of working with trans and non-binary youth. So it will be something in the, for the most part that people young people have really thought about for a long time and, and adult trans and non-binary people too so mm. I think it's really important not to ask the immediate question of are you sure because although that mm. is an important question I think to get to eventually and again it will vary on the by the young person but actually what that might say to the young person is oh you think I'm not telling the truth you think I'm making this up you think this is just a phase, you don't believe me. And I think there's enough in the press and on social media platforms, um, and even within the treatment process of young people accessing gender identity um, services, where they have to really prove who they are compared mm. to adult services. Um, even when there's no physical intervention, permanent physical intervention available to young people anyway. Mm. Um, so it is just talking therapy and exploring um, and the possibility of, of having hormone blockers. But I think actually young people really have to prove who they are. So never ask a young person if they're sure within the first conversation. I just, I think it's really important to not ask that. Um, I think, you know, one of the things if somebody says, oh, I'm questioning my gender identity, or they say I'm transgender or I'm non-binary, because both of those terms, transgender and non-binary, are umbrella terms for potentially other minority gender identities, or, um, you know, we know that gender identity for everybody, cis people, trans people, non-binary people, is a very personal experience. 
I think a really good question is to say, you know, based on what the young person said, if they said, oh, you know, I think I'm non-binary, you know, you can say, I know that non-binary means different things to different people. You know, thank you for sharing this with me. I'm really glad that you've, you've opened up to me. Do you want to tell me a little bit more about how you feel about your gender identity? Mm. And that gives that young person that space to go, oh, okay, yeah, I will. Or they might say, and I am not a parent. So, you know, who am I to say? Although the young people I worked with did call me the fairy trans mother on national TV. Oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> that was quite nice, bless them. I didn't know they were going to do that. I was, I was on a television programme a while ago. Um, you know, I, I'm not here to tell parents and carers how to do their parental and caring role. Um, and, it, you know, a young person might say, oh, well, don't, don't ask me about that because I, I don't know. And it's okay not to know. And I think sometimes I've worked with some people who said, like parents and carers, um, who say, oh, well, you know, well, you, you told me this, so, you know, why don't you know? And actually, it's, it can be really daunting for trans and non-binary youth. And I think there is a, always a fear of sharing with people in case you're going to be rejected or told you're too young to understand. I mean, too young to understand what? Your own feelings. Like, I, you know, those feelings come from somewhere. And I think that's the most frustrating thing for me is when people say, oh, you know, children are too young to understand. Well, they're their feelings inside and they deserve to be seen and heard for who they are and supported with exploration. I know I'm going off on a tangent now, sorry, but no, no. I think it's, as professionals and parents and carers, it's really important that we support in that exploration. So, you know, yeah. if, if we work in a college or if we work in a secondary school, or even a primary school and you're working with someone who's who's questioning their gender identity or very sure they might actually have been assigned female but know themselves to be male then what can you asking those sort of open questions telling a young person that you really appreciate the fact that they've shared it with you that you know that it shows that they trust you and you know that you really value that mm. ask them what you can do to 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 support them um, I'd maybe move away from the word help because I think again that's positive intended, positively intended, but perhaps suggests a bit of uh, I was going to say victimisation. That's not really what I mean. Yeah, no, the power, there's a power control with the word help, isn't there? There is a um, sometimes a negative uh, attachment to that word. Yeah, maybe even when it's positively intended, though. Okay? Yes. So yeah, I yeah. think you know, asking somebody what can we do to support you, um, and then also just. I mean, and schools and colleges will have different things in place. So, you know, it might be that somebody who's maybe struggling, who's trans or non-binary and struggling with their mental health mm. um, and, and, and well-being, um, you know, might check in with the, with the well-being team once a day just to see how they are. You know, there's different things that you can put in place. But I think, you know, asking a young, acknowledging that a young person has potentially shared something very personal and trusted you, I think is acknowledge that. And appreciate that and 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 have that open body language ask them you know trans non-binary it it, it it kind of means you know i know it means different things to different people what what does it mean to you can you tell me more about how you're feeling about your gender identity if mm. you're happy to share that with me mm. and then just let them have a voice and let them be heard because i think the other thing which i always say to people when i'm training anybody gp surgery practitioners school staff college staff um, I mean, even when I did some training for the police, I was like, you might be the first person that somebody has ever told. And I, I run um, the trans and non-binary drop-in support and advice service at Loughborough University. 
So twice a month I have a um I have appointments that trans and non-binary or gender questioning students mm. can look onto. And you know, I had a student who came in and and it had been a while since I had a student who was the first, I was the first person that they told. And so I saw I wasn't ready for it, but it had been a while. And then, mm. you know, I, I sat them and I talked to them and I put the boundaries in because it was our first session, all of that. And then I said, you know, can what what can I do for you today what motivated you to book an appointment and they said um well I'm I'm transgender and then they sat back in their chair and they said that's the first time I've said that out loud to anyone wow and for me that's it's such it's a privilege it Mm. really it really is actually a privilege and I and I had some feedback recently that um a student said it's really it's really nice to come to a space and be able to share my feelings Mm. Um, in a world where people are less accepting oh. and that's really positive for me but actually mm. really quite depressing and so this is bring it back this mm. is why professionals and parents and carers you know even strangers in the street or you know can have a positive like make a positive difference um you know so using the right name using the right pronoun for somebody um you know if you're going to use gendered language like love for women and mate for men you know making sure that that you're doing that for you know trans people who identify mm. within the binary um and maybe avoiding using gendered language for people who are non-binary because they don't even though non-binary is an umbrella term they don't they maybe don't identify within one gender binary of male or female so maybe mm. avoiding using gender um gendered language can actually be a really inclusive way of working with somebody mm. um so yeah really got off on the no I know that's <laughs> just so fascinating well fascinating really yeah um like you said um heart-wrenching to think that still the youth feel it's an unaccepting world I just find that in this day and age to still be hearing that. So do you think that is still a struggle for the LGBT youth plus um, youth coming through, that they still feel there's a barrier, they still feel it's a struggle to say it out loud? That's a really hard question because I think, but if you ha- if you made me pick a yes or no, I think mm. I would have to lean towards the yes mm. side. I think it is really difficult for young people, not everybody. So sometimes, for example, I, I worked with a, a young trans boy. Um, he was awesome. And he, he needed some help being referred through to gender identity services um, for young people. But actually, his school were really accepting. His friends were really accepting. His family were really accepting. His, the different activities he did outside of school, I can't remember what they were, but, you know, whether it was sports or, um, I don't know, other things, like, everybody in in his immediate world were really accepting of him and so actually his confidence and self-esteem was fairly high his academic achievement at school had hadn't been affected by his social transition um, mm. or his feelings about his gender identity um and so i think you know for him obviously you know it's been years since i saw him i hope he's doing well but he might say oh no i'm really open about who i am it's fine but i think when you look at the levels of um, transphobic, homophobic, biphobic abuse on social media sites, if you look at the microaggressions that are coming out of um, fairly, like what were previously and sometimes still are, depending on the journalist, 
fairly legitimate news sources like the guardian the bbc mm. actually there's quite a lot of um sometimes explicit but un, unsaid prejudice i mean even within headlines you know because mm. they want you to click on it and so for me you know if you look also i mean without being too doomy gloomy l because it's not all doom and gloom but actually if you look at hate crime statistics um in the last five years hate i think the last five maybe definitely the last four hate crime that is motivated by um, prejudice towards um, LGBT plus people has gone up every single year. And um, although there's, it's still not as many as um, racial motivated hate crimes, in terms of the percentage increase, it's actually higher um, yeah. than, than racially motivated hate crime. And so, and, and the thing is young people are aware of this. And I've, I've worked with some parents and carers of, of trans and non-binary young people who have worked really, really hard to try and protect them. But mm. our youth are constantly on social media. I mean, my colleagues- Do you think it's kind of a correlation with those um, speaking out more about it, that it's actually, it's more out there and being spoken about, which is inviting a bit more sort of negative abuse because they feel they can. It's just, do you feel yeah. it's that kind of correlation or do you think just people aren't accepting it and not I educated. Think, I, well, I think it's, I think, yeah, if you talk about something more, there's always going to be people and it's more visible. Mm. Um, then there's always going to be people who then maybe they always had that prejudice, but because mm. it, it wasn't LGBT plus people weren't as visible. They didn't feel the need to voice that. Um, but I think there has been a huge rise in, uh, even if it's the, I hope it's the major, minority of the population, I was going to say of, um, of, of basically trans, trans, anti-trans groups, I think they're called. Um, and so, I mean, people refer to them differently. Sometimes people talk about people being a turf, a trans exclusionary radical feminist. Um, but anyone, you know, anti-trans and non-binary movement, um, I think is is there. Sometimes it seem, seems bigger than it is because mm. they get a lot of press coverage, or because it's the one thing that you, you know, you hear about. Um, but I do think that there are a lot of more people who are accepting than even I sometimes feel, you know, just because I'm a mm. gay woman and I also do this as a job, like it still hurts, it still gets mm. to me. Um, and, you know, my resilience is maybe not as high as it used to be, but we're also in a global health pandemic, so maybe that's okay. Yeah. But actually, that will I do believe that ha I have to have hope and there will be more accepting people out there but mm. maybe it's just that we hear more about the unaccepting voices than we do the accepting voices mm. um, which is which is why I also think like allyship is really important as yes. well so like you know being an ally but you can also be an obviously be an ally to anybody so you know as a white person I would want to to the best of my ability, be an ally to people of colour. Mm. And I might not always get that right because I don't necessarily know the ins and outs of um, different practices within, within different cultures and, eth mm. and ethnic minorities and, and different um, kind of religions and things like, like, I don't know everything, but I want to learn and I want to be open-minded and mm. I, I'm happy for people to correct me. So if I ever mm. say anything that I think is is referring to someone correctly I would hope that somebody said Do you know what actually Lisa that's not right this is the right thing to say um 
I mean, it hasn't happened for a while because I'm always trying to be as inclusive as I can be. But I think, you know, lots of people are in the same way that they're afraid maybe to work with a young person who's LGBT plus because they're not afraid to work with them, but they're afraid of getting it wrong and upsetting them and doing the wrong thing. I think sometimes people are a bit nervous about being an active ally because, again, mm. they don't get it wrong. Um, but again, I always live by pie. <laughs> so yes. like pie. Um, but positive intention and empathy. Mm. So I just don't think you can go wrong if you have positive intention and empathy. So for me, you know, it might be that if I say I'm an, I want to try and be an ally to, to um, people who have physical disability, for mm -hmm. example, I don't know lots and lots about physical disabilities and the challenges and the discrimination that comes with that. But actually wanting to be an ally is positive intention and empathy. But if I say something with positive intention and then it's the wrong thing to say, actually, if someone corrects me, I can empathize with their experience and I can empathize with what they're saying. And I'm open-minded to take on board what they're saying and change mm. my behavior. Um, but I think so many people, especially with social media platforms as well, and it being a world where I think we feel more maybe than five years ago that we can just say what we think online and, and maybe in person, but more online and it just doesn't matter. Mm. I think, although I don't know if it's most people, there are people who just want to say what they think and never ever take on board or have a discussion about it with someone. Mm. Whereas I'm always, I want to be the best ally I can be for the trans and non-binary communities because I'm, I'm a cis person, but also be an ally to everybody. And it sounds wishy-washy, but actually, you know, I always want to learn from other people. I always want to have an open mind. I want to hear about people's lived experience. So yeah. that I can, you know, the next time, and it's weird because I'm not really seeing anyone right now. So it's weird to think about it. But the next time I was in a social situation where somebody was making an inappropriate comment about a community of people, I could, step up and say the right thing to challenge that as an ally mm. um, I've digressed as well no I, I don't think you have <laughs> I think it's as we said it flowed really beautifully um, <laughs> through all of this but talking about allies and sort of advocacy do you think the universities you've said Loughborough have got that great program that you're there um, to be a drop-in support for the LGBT plus community do you think universities have got it right now do you think they have got this advocacy and support in place that is needed? Um, that's a hard one to answer. Or is it emerging? Yeah. I think, well, I think I'll, I'll use Loughborough as an experience. So the service I run is just for trans and non-binary people. Right. They also have the um, LGBT plus association that has, um, and across that they have um, different like student offices within their committee. So they have um, like the trans officer and the bisexual officer and the plus officer and people who specialize in certain areas and they run events and, and welfare appointments um, for LGBT plus students who want to get involved. Um, and I, I think even compared to when I, so when I joined Loughborough University in 2006, like, well, there was like maybe eight people who were part of the LGBT association as it was then. And I managed to increase membership quite a lot by making some changes, which was really, which was really like cool for me because I like made hopefully made a difference. But um, now, like I went to not last year, but the year before when the service first started running, the trans and non-binary service, I went to the LGBT plus open evening. They had an open evening at the student union. That didn't happen in my day. And like 
I got there and Alex Marlowe, um, who, who was part of the LGBT plus association at the time, said to me, right, Lise, he was like, he was like, you just need to just stand up and talk about what the service is so that people know your face and who you are and your voice. And then they can, they'll feel more comfortable about booking an appointment. I was like, yeah, Alex, no problem. When I got there, there were 120 students. Wow. Wow. At the open evening. Like, and I looked around and I was like, my, like, it's been 12 years since I graduated and 15 years since I joined the university. And that might sound like quite a long time, but actually it's not that long. And actually to go from like, not even having an open evening mm. to having, you know, an LGBT plus open evening to talk about what they offer for LGBT plus students and have 120 students turn up. Mm. I mean, it was, it was pretty amazing. So I think, I think you, every university is different and it depends on thinking within the organization. Uh, how much money you've got because money makes the world go around doesn't it mm. um but I, I certainly think that you know Loughborough University have in the last 10 or 15 years massively upped their game in terms of um inclusivity from what I know like with different st- like partners yeah. within the uni like with it with it their inclusivity definitely well, it sounds um, like they've got a really sound model that the universities could really learn from and kind of pull on yeah and I mean even Loughborough College so I run although I haven't actually been onto campus yet to meet any students because of Covid but it's all done via Microsoft Teams Mm. um but I run an LGBT plus um support and advice service for LGBT plus students at Loughborough College and that's been really successful as well um and so I think I think it's really needed, but there are colleges, there are universities and there are schools that are are stepping up and saying, do you know what, actually, we need some specialist support in this area or, you know, we need to be able to provide support for students. So we want to learn, you know, we Mm. want to have that training. Um, And I think one of the things that I've always done is I've, you know, so many people have said to me, please just develop like a generic LGBT plus training program, put it on your website and sell it. It'll be a really great like passive income product. And they're probably right. Mm. But for me, it's about getting to know a school, getting to know a college, getting to know, you know, even when I went and did some training for a GP surgery recently, it's about getting to know what they're about so that I can offer them a bespoke training package. Now, things Mm. around barriers and challenges might overlap sometimes. Things around, um, obviously, like meaning and meanings of identities will, will be the same in different training packages, but actually being able to offer that kind of bespoke product Mm. to support people in a very specific role I think is really important especially Mm. around like building confidence as well and what's next for you what's next I don't know like this is a weird time now because I just want to know I know do you know what I I keep thinking (laughs) that you know lockdown this is the new new norm and like everything is via zoom and this is how we now meet every new people and do things but um, it's also a time for opportunity, time for growth and development. And, you know, within the LGBT uh, plus community, do you see new things coming through from the time that you did in politics and with sort of government? Did you see, you know, action coming through and support that way also? Um, yeah, I think, well, I worked in Parliament when same sex marriage bill went through. So that was a really exciting wow. time for me um, because I'm 33 now. Goodness knows, I can't remember how old I was at the time, but I didn't, I'm not a pessimist, but I didn't think I'd see that in my lifetime. 
Um, wow. So obviously, like we're moving forward with certain legislation, but mm. um, government have well have like an LGBT action plan and they have an advisory board. But a lot of people recently resigned, and it they've they've kind of stalled on banning conversion therapy a bit, um, and they. Do you well, think there should be an age on that? What banning From, conversion therapy? Not banning it. No. Is there an age? Is there an age um, cap on it already? So that I think it was eighteen, wasn't it? That you won't be able to sort of transgender until eighteen. Oh, um, or is that something so totally we, different? Have I got that wrong? No, that's something totally different. Oh, okay. Um, but no, no, that. But well, okay. So there's two things. So, um, so yeah. So. When some when you said about somebody transgender, actually the best phrase to use is transition. Okay, so often sorry. people will say to me, "No, no, it's all right." Yeah. People often say, "Oh, someone's transgendering," or "Someone's transgender," yeah. and actually, what we mean is that someone's transitioning, or they're transitioned, or they want to transition. So that's the best okay. word to use. Um, but um, there was there was a legal case um, in. That hit the news. I mean, it's been ongoing for a while, but I believe it's Bell versus. I don't know who it was versus, but basically, a, a young a young adult who was supported through gender identity clinics as a young person um, transitioned in adulthood medically. I believe I don't. I'm not an expert on this, and I haven't read into all the detail of it. Um, because there's legal teams supporting national charities doing that. So, yeah, um, and I wanted to put more energy into other things, but, um, and also I'm, I'm not a lawyer. Um, but um, basically, Kira Bell uh, took, I think, the, the Tavistock that support young people to court. I think it was the Tavistock, but certainly an, like the NHS body. Um, and and won the case, which basically then meant that Tavistock had to stop all hormone blocking treatment, which is a reversible medical intervention that basically prevents puberty from starting. Or if you've already started puberty, it pauses it, which means that it gives you breathing space so that if your body isn't how you feel it should be, that then it can prevent you having to undergo surgery you might want to undergo to get rid of some of those body parts and also it might prevent body development that also can't be changed by surgery so possibly mm. height size of hands and feet those like um those kind of things um so it's quite complicated but yeah so basically the Tavistock had to stop basically immediately the next day um so people who'd waited five years six years mm. to go and have hormone therapy appointment for for hormone blockers so nothing like if you come off hormone blockers you just develop as you would have done so it's not a permanent intervention like testosterone or estrogen mm. um and it's only available on the nhs to uh in the gender clinics for people who are um i think it's age between like 11 and 16 i think but basically that stopped overnight so people who'd waited you know six years mm. um then weren't able to access that um so it's since been whether it's been reversed but or it's been successful as you can tell i'm not a lawyer can't you um it's been successfully challenged so now i believe the tavistock are it's still in that challenge process but the first stage has been successfully challenged so young people will be able to access hormone blockers but for me my personal viewpoint on that 
is having not, I've not read all the detail. I can only imagine what Kirabel, I think that's, I think that's her name anyway, um, has gone through in terms of her own gender journey and questioning mm. herself and being supported into different NHS systems and then changing her mind and, you know, essentially being stuck with, with body, like her body would have changed and you can't reverse that and things. Mm. But is it her place to stop all young people mm. accessing the support they need? Because we know there's studies, limited studies that are out there suggest that people, trans and non-binary people in their, who are adolescents and feel a certain way about their gender identity, most will persist into adulthood. Mm. And also for me, because hormone blockers are re reversible, you know, okay. <laughs> like, you know, if, if a young person's, you know, really low and really sad or has a diagnosable mental health problem and is potentially suicidal or has tried to take their own life and is self-harming because they can't be who they want to be, I think it's really important that young people are supported by professional people mm. to get to where they need to be. Um, or even if they have to wait for certain interventions like, like surgery and things, that's when you're an adult. But I want young people to be held in a supportive, inclusive way by professionals. And I feel like with the Kira Bell case, I can really, I can only empathize with her situation, mm. but I think it's really difficult when you start then your legal challenge then affects other young people who most likely will go on to be a trans or non-binary adult. Mm. Um, so that's really difficult. Um, with conversion therapy, I'm a bit conscious about time really. Yeah, sorry, yeah, we get... <laughs> <laughs> um, but with conversion therapy, so it's not actually illegal in the UK, certainly in England and Wales, to um, try and convert somebody from being trans to being cis or from non-binary to being cis or you know someone who says they're a lesbian you know somebody says I can save you like we'll do electric shock therapy and would we'll, you know actually a lot of that isn't it's not illegal in this country um and for me that's really really challenging actually because I don't think that you can and again I'm not a psychology expert I'm I'm not an electric shock therapy expert um but from working on the front line and also being my own experience of being a lesbian woman just mine I don't think any amount of electric shock therapy um spiritual banish banishing spirits from you um you know and also like some of the horrible things you hear about like lesbian women just being being told to sleep with men, like just sleep with men and that will make you straight. I think it's it's a really difficult area and I think often vulnerable people will be taken advantage of in that, mm. in that situation. So it's not actually, the government committed to banning conversion therapy um, within a certain time frame, and they've missed it. Right. Um, and I know there's a global health pandemic um, and I know yeah. things aren't always that simple. But for me, that's really shocking because I mean, we're talking about conversion therapy. <laughs> like, mm. I mean, because there's a for me as well. You know, lots of people have said, well, religious ideology, like some some religions, like don't approve or accept LGBT plus people. But for me, there's a real difference between having a set of beliefs or values and 
harming somebody, like physically mm. and mentally harming somebody in the name of a god or an ideology. Um, and so, um, yeah, I think conversion therapy, it's about time it was banned, actually. So the government are, I think we've come some steps forward, mm. um, but I think we're in a time of real difficulty at the moment, yes, if you look at the political sphere. Trying to put it in a really diplomatic way, Earl. Um, and actually, and for me, I think sometimes it feels, you know, sometimes maybe too hard or too difficult to, or like 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 it's going to be too difficult to overcome this period, you know, um, where sometimes the hate of the minority just seems mm. so overwhelming. But I think that's why doing the frontline work and trying your best to be an ally and being kind and practicing pi positive intention and empathy like it can just make the the biggest difference mm. ever people um and then yeah. for sort of the lgbt plus community within leicester where you know and for parents out there that are watching this thinking i'm, I'm looking for support and guidance where would they go where do you suggest um, that kind of first portal call is there's lots of places can i just interrupt you are we recording yeah. it visually as well as audio yeah like, do you know what, if I'd known, if I'd known that, like, look at the glare in my glasses, oh. I'd, have turned, look, I'd have turned it down. Oh, no. oh that's awful. Oh, we can all see you now. Glowering. <laughs> oh, on the last five minutes. Um, I'm like, hello, everyone. Um, you can actually see my eyes. Sorry, for, do you know what, I don't know why this. No, don't worry. Good, it? No, it's I, been fun. I thought it would just be audio. Um, I, there's lots and lots of support that is available, I would say, nationally and also regionally as well. Um, so obviously the Leicester LGBT Centre is a charity based on Wellington Street in Leicester. Um, I do some part-time work with them. I'd left them for a bit and I've gone back on a part-time basis. Um, so I know that they're doing some fantastic work supporting LGBT plus um, young people, but also adults and also the families of LGBT plus people as well. So if you just Google Leicester LGBT Centre, then um, then you'll find the resources that you need there. Um, but also there are, um, I know that if you live in Leicestershire, I know it's a bit more north than Market Harbour, but um, I know that there's LGBT Melton. So there's a lot of youth groups as well that run um, in the kind of Melton and also Charmwood area, which is which is really great mm. too. Um, but then there's also lots of national um, charities. So um, Mermaids is the national charity that supports families of trans and non-binary young yeah. people. They have a support line, they have a helpline, um, they have lots of lovely trained volunteers who will respond to emails and also answer your phone call um, in a really non-judgmental way, which is really nice. Mm. Um, also, Stonewall is, is, I say obviously, but not everybody's heard of Stonewall. Um, to me, it's, it's obvious, but this is my world, isn't it? Um, so Stonewall's the national LGBT plus charity uh, in the UK, um, but they, I mean, they're, they're world kind of renowned um, and they have um, an information line so you can email them, you can call them, but they also have, what's really good is they have like a whole resources section on their website of where you put in your postcode or your town or your city. Oh, wow. And it will tell you the nearest available support groups and social mm. groups and LGBT plus groups. And um, so that can be really like a really useful resource, too. Um, and they have lots of things on there for um, teachers and schools um, and colleges and and staff. So um, I, I don't know if it's still the case, but they, they do a lot of um, 
things like uh, posters and stickers and stuff that you can have around in school and college. I mean, or even in your house, if you wanted to, mm. where you just pay for postage. So it's free, but you just pay for postage. And actually that can be really good because um, especially for professionals, if you're having maybe if you're a school nurse and you're having your first appointment with someone and they've been referred through to you for anxiety, you don't know what, what that, where that anxiety is coming from. If you have a poster up that says um, different families, same love from Stonewall, or you, um, you wear a gen, I'll talk about gendered intelligence in a second, but um, you have like a badge that says I'm intelligent about gender, which is from gendered intelligence. Actually that highlights to an LGBT plus young person. Mm. Oh, this person's open for me to talk about this. So actually Stone will have some really good resources, but gendered intelligence are the leading trans and non-binary youth charity um, in the UK. And they are an entirely trans and non-binary led organization. So all their staff and all their volunteers are trans and non-binary themselves. Um, Finn, who is um, uh, their head of youth work engage or head of youth engagement, or so I can't remember his job title now. Um, he once said to me, Lisa, I would genuinely love to employ you, but you're Sith. I'm like, that's okay, that's fine. Oh. And I quite like the fact that you know, back in the day you said that to me and I thought that must make me a good ally. Like maybe the fairy trans mother um, label is, is right. But um, they are a trans non-binary led completely organization and they run like summer camps and events. I mean, with COVID it's challenging, obviously. Um, yeah. But they have loads of resources on their website as well. So they're gendered intelligent. But I think um, also with having that, um, that sign to say I'm open to talk about gender identity. I think also if your school or your college doesn't have something to advocate for the LGBT plus community, then there's your, your key to starting one or rallying or, you know, creating your own community um, there at your school or college. Yeah. So absolutely, the new leaders that are coming up and the new advocacies, it's time um, for you to like start stepping up in uh, finding your freedom I just think it's fantastic thank you so much Lisa that's all right thank was there anything we've missed I don't know if there was anything we've missed you wanted to to add in no, uh, no the only thing I would say is that we could talk about this all day yeah I, I, we, could, we could you know we could talk about it all week like there's so much you know and I've probably just touched the surface yeah surface you know people who have made it to the end uh, mm. um, but for people who've made it to the end you know they might think oh you know she talked about this but that's just this you know it is it's such a broad you know for me something I'm really passionate about topic you know but they can get in contact with you can't they Lisa on your website um yeah. and what's your your website address yeah so it's just www.lisavine.com or um email me lisa at lisavine.com um, so, so yeah, and, and I'm always open to, um, you know, start school, college staff, um, emailing me. I had a really nice, um, I'm conscious of time now, um, but I had a really nice email um, from a parent of a trans and non-binary young person the other day because I wrote a blog about a TV programme that was on a couple of years ago because it was not good, is what right. I would say, about trans and non-binary youth. And this mum had found, I don't know how she'd found me, she must have read my blog from Northern Ireland and she emailed me and said oh hi Lisa I'm so and so from so and said I just wanted to say how much I appreciate you um you know mm. like trans and non-binary people and I, and I emailed her back and she said I didn't expect to get an email but I will always reply to people and I want oh. to be able to support people because I think 
it's so important like if it hasn't been obvious throughout this it's so important it that is important when you have yeah. positive intention and empathy and you want to do the right thing I don't want to turn anyone away from being able to offer some expertise that I might have which will make them do their job to the best of their ability and feel confident about it and mm. I think for me that's the most important thing so Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. What a great conversation. And I've learned so much through this as well. So thank you so much. Um, and we'll speak to you soon. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you. Bye. Bye.